Hey, Rarecast listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to become empowered data owners and stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. December, Castle Creek Pharmaceutical Holdings completed its acquisition of Fibercell. The deal brought together two companies developing therapies for rare skin disorders. We spoke to John Mislowski, CEO of the combined company, about its late-stage gene therapy and development for recessive dystrophic epidermolosis bullosa, how it differs from what is conventionally thought of as gene therapy, and what the acquisition does to advance the pipeline of the two companies. John, thanks for joining us. Dan, thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. We're going to talk about skin and connective tissue diseases, your experimental cell and gene therapy to treat them, and the recently announced acquisition of Fibrocell Science by Castle Creek Pharmaceutical Holdings. Let's start with recessive dystrophic epidermolosis bullosa, or RDEB. What is it? How does it manifest itself? And how does it progress? Right. So... You know, the, they call RDEB the, the, the worst disease you've never heard of. And luckily, there's been more and more press around this disease and getting the notoriety you should have. It's an absolutely devastating disorder that occurs from a genetic um, basis. And what happens is there's a protein missing uh, in the genes of these children, and there are adults who also have the disorder as well. Um, really, just one gene, it's known as a monogenic disorder, called call 7A, and it encodes a protein called type 7 collagen, and the lack of this protein causes an issue in skin where it doesn't properly bond together the two layers known as the epidermis and dermis. And what happens in this condition is with a bit of lateral friction or even temperature change, uh, the patients start to manifest these uh, blisters on their skin. And as you can imagine, they turn into these uh, sort of cycles of blisters that become wounds and that become chronic wounds and have an absolutely debilitating impact on, on quality of life, which includes, you know, a lifetime of manage, wound management. There's issues with uh, sepsis, as you can imagine, and, and you know, there's a, a mortality rate associated with RDEB because of the fact that it can lead to squamous cell carcinoma, which eventually ends up, you know, being a big issue in a lot of the lives of these patients. And it progresses over time as as wounding disorders will. They create contracture tissues. They create pain and itching. And, you know, it's it's really just this cycle of having to manage these wounds and and move through life like that. 
And what's the prognosis for someone with the condition? It's it's a it's a very uh, painful and 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 very sort of you know impacts the lives of of an entire family and caregiver um, sort of network around that patient. It's it's a a lifetime of a lot of uh, you know wound management care where we're um, constantly doing bandage changes. We're doing baths that can take hours at a time in order to make sure these are properly cared for. That also include antisepsis baths that can use uh, agents like Clorox and how they keep really the bio burden down on the skin and, you know, just a, a wide variety of surgeries that are associated with the uh, disorder as well. There's uh, issues with esophageal um, problems where there's closure and they have to do dilatations. This does impact all tissue for these patients, including the oral mucosa and, and, and obviously can, in fact, impact swallowing and, and um, also eating as well. And, you know, as the fingers actually get a lot of mobility, and you probably can imagine a lot of wounding, the fingers can actually fuse to one another and create a mitten hand syndrome. So a lot of these patients are in um, often, you know, sometimes yearly for these uh, finger separation surgeries. So as you can see, it's a, it's a sort of lifetime of, of, of wound management in order to, uh, you know, create an ability to continue from a day-to-day -day basis. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it's really the fear of, squamous cell carcinoma that, that can impact the lives of these patients. Somewhere around 76% of patients uh, do succumb to the disease in their 30s just because of the lifetime of uh, cancer concern as well. And are there therapeutic options today or are people just treating this as a, a wound management issue? Yeah, there's no approved therapies um, you know, that have, that have come through either in the U.S. or worldwide. It is very palliative, as you sort of alluded to at the end there, Dan. It's, it's a lot of these home care and managing the wounds and managing pain and itch um, over time through various, uh, you know, the, the various pain medications they take and, as I mentioned, all the wound management surgeries. So this truly is a really unmet need where, uh, you know, a very uh, good therapies are needed, and, and in this case, being a genetic therapy, an advanced genetic therapy is a really great way to potentially approach this disease. I think a, a lot of people think of gene therapy in the context of these one-and-done treatments. You're actually developing a, a, a gene therapy that's different. This is not one-and-done, but it's and it's not systemically delivered. What is FCX007? So it's an excellent question, and with all the uh, sort of boom in gene therapy, there's a lot of sort of new knowledge in the area, and, and you bring up a very good point about a lot of the currently approved therapies in uh, retinal diseases or in oncology where you do have these one-and-done systemic treatments. This is, as you mentioned, a different approach. And I'll, let me talk a little bit about what the product is and, and why we think this sort of more localized approach is, is good for a disease like RDEB. So we're creating a... Uh, gene therapy product that is actually a uh, fibroblast cell from the patient. So it's an approach called autologous, which means we take cells from the patient. And that has a lot of advantages in the way where, you know, there is, could be uh, rejection of allogeneic cells, which are from another source. Uh, we think the autologous approach, especially in RDEB patients that have a heightened immune system uh, response due to all the wounding, is a really great way to ensure that we're using the right cells to carry genes of interest to the patient. So we collect their uh, fibroblast cells, which reside in the dermal layer or the lower layer of skin, 
and we genetically modify them using what's called a viral vector. And a viral vector is a, uh, is, is a shuttle, you know, it's based on a virus that we can actually put a gene in that we've des designed synthetically, and then that virus can carry that gene to the cells, insert it into the DNA, and then this, this functional gene then can divide with the cells and then create a therapy, you know, essentially these cells that now produce a functional version of the protein that was missing in their original genetics. And our goal here is to create a bank of these cells for patients, and then they can use them and draw on them from, um, you know, from the course of where they need management in a lifetime. And as I mentioned, this is a, a localized approach. When it comes to skin, there's a, it's a very big organ, and there's a lot of areas to treat. And, you know, systemic approaches to try to do this can have some challenges with, you know, not only toxicology, but, you know, really can you get enough protein to all the areas of the skin you want to concentrate on, being that skin, you know, has less vascularization than other tissues in the body. So here we, we found through our early research, and this is sort of the pre, you know, the preclinical research where there's a localized approach is not only we believe is safe and we'll continue to evaluate that in clinical trials, but the best way to get the cells to the area of disease. And so the goal will be then to have this bank to go back to and treat other areas of the body. You can start problematic wounds and then move to other areas. And it'll just become a part of their lifetime therapy to help keep their, you know, we, what we hope is keep their wounding at bay and, and then, you know, try to return quality of life. And what do we know about the durability of the effect? How often would someone have to dose themselves? Yeah, so that's what uh, our clinical trials have been about. And, you know, we're just about to embark on a, on a phase three trial here with what we believe is the optimal finalized dose. And what the, the way we're treating this, Dan, is, you know, we'll, we'll dose an area. And if you think of a wound, what we do is we insert these cells through intradermal injections. So they are intradermally injected in these patients. Uh, we go around the periphery of the wound, sort of the leading edge where the wound healing process is occurring. And then, you know, our hypothesis is, is that we, we sort of elicit a wound healing response, and as these cells sort of migrate and do what they do when it comes to wound healing, you know, we believe they're laying down collagen 7 and, and creating a, uh, a durable place for this to, to sort of heal over. And what we're doing is we're, creating, we're doing a, a dose of these cells as sort of around the periphery approach. We do repeat that dose in that same area four weeks later. You know, based on some of our early clinical data, we believe that wounds, we see good wound closure in that four-week period. And now you've created this sort of bed of a, you know, less inflamed, less sort of impacted immunological area that you can put another round of cells in to create even additional durability. And that's what we're testing as we move forward in the clinical trial. Uh, we've seen data out a year so far in our patients, and, you know, you know, we're seeing good trends in durability. We've reported on this, um, some data back at SID in 2018, and, you know, moving forward to do uh, additional data readouts. So, you know, as we continue to monitor these post-clinical trials, we hope to see, you know, a prolonged effect in the area treated, and then we would repeat that treatment using cells we have stored. Um, and other areas of the body as we continue around and, and address wounds as they emerge. And what's the case for the approach? So it's it's based on really the the kind of patient need and and how we sort of evaluate types of wounds. And I'll and I'll talk a little bit about EB wounds and specifically an RDB to kind of frame out the case for how we decided this. And we've seen um, patients and their natural history studies have seen sort of two categories of generalized wounds. There's these recurrent wounds that sort of open and close and, 
you know, um, on like a few week cycle and, and patients, they're chronic in the fact that they keep opening and reclosing. Um, but then patients also have these chronic non-healing wounds. And these are really the ones, Dan, that lead to sort of the worst case scenarios from a health standpoint. They're all bad, obviously. Um, but the non-healing ones have a lot more susceptibility to sepsis, as you can imagine, and obviously cancer as well. So when we were designing the product and thinking about really you know, why do we want to do this approach, you know, I think the autologous was clear um, from a um, from a, a immunological standpoint. But we really wanted to make sure we can create a, a, a functional genetic therapy that can address these non-healing chronic wounds. And all the data we've generated so far has been in these non-healing chronic wounds. We actually pre-monitor these wounds before we dose them to ensure they are that category, that they're open for at least three or four months and that we don't see them healing. Uh, and then we select those. And that the, the case there was to make sure we're, we're picking those sort of most relevant clinical wounds on the, on the patients. And we designed the dosing and the, and the idea of trying to cloning those around the patient's needs in those wounds. And what do we know about the therapy from the clinical trials that have been conducted to date? Sure. So we've, we've executed on a phase one to uh, open label trial where we actually uh, designed the study to have not only a dose area of wound, but we also paired that with a non-treated wound so we can do some natural history comparisons and actually start to think about designing a, you know, sort of a control. Uh, so this is an intrapatient, intrapatient trial. And in this, we treated six patients so far. Uh, we reported on five of them, like I mentioned, that, um, you know, in the last SID, not the one that was just passed, but the Society of Vesicular Dermatology being a year before. And we've been monitoring a, a number of aspects of safety, which include the general um, looking at adverse events. Do we see anything? We have not seen any related serious adverse events or anything of concern from that standpoint using these, this, the dose. Another important aspect of this is we're also trying to work on controlling, you know, steam therapy and what are the safety around that. And we've, we conduct a few tests. One's called, uh, uh, there's a replication competence test we perform not only in the product, but also in the patient, just to make sure we don't see adverse effect of gene therapy. Um, we check in the serum patients. We see no issues there. Um, so very happy with that result. But I think the most important one we're really monitoring for safety are, are there any autoantibody responses to a protein that a patient has not originally seen from an immune standpoint? And by introducing this protein now, are we eliciting any sort of uh, immune response that's going to be adverse? And we actually test that by doing um, an antibody response in the sera of the patients. We do it localized as well. And, you know, uh, favorably, we have not seen any autoimmune responses to the, to the drug as well. So, so you know, uh, out to a year so far in patients, we've collected safety data, have not seen anything of concern to date. So, you know, obviously, we share these data with FDA and, you know, continue to work very closely with them and, and Harmony to sort of figure out what's the right path for the drug. And we've done that so uh, as we are designing our phase three as well. When you prepare the therapy, is the viral vector still present in the cell? So here's how that works, because it's a very good question about how these sort of types of gene therapies work, and there are a few. There are types of gene therapies where you can use a viral vector directly as the drug, and there's actually um, an example of that is, is the uh, Spark drug that was approved for uh, rare retina, uh, the rare retina diseases, as it's called an AAV, 
and it's directly administered to the eye for that therapy. And then there are others like genetically modified cells like MRI and other CAR-T therapies that are approved, yes, CARDIV, you know, modified cells, and we're the second one. So the viral vector is actually only used in our manufacturing process to introduce the gene of interest. And once that's integrated, we, you know, we, we continue to grow these cells and they're washed out, so we're not delivering the virus itself. It's really just your cells coming back now with this gene cassette that we've introduced from the viral vector. And what's the path forward? What's the what's the path to approval for the drug? When when might you be in a position to file? Sure. So you know we're obviously um, if you were following the company before and, and the and the progress of FCX zero zero seven, we had had an end of phase two meeting back in April of this year. You know to talk exactly with the FDA about that, and really you know there's a lot of aspects of of an end of phase two meeting you discuss, and in there. You know, we really talked a lot about the phase three potential design for this study, what an endpoints might look like. You might be hearing a lot, especially in rare disease. You know, there aren't sort of the classic endpoint um, tools that are out there for a lot of the larger disorders. Here, we're doing a lot of designing and a lot of validating as we go uh, with these endpoints, and, and EB is is really in the same boat. So, a lot of discussion around what do the endpoints look like, what's the trial design. Very importantly, how are wounds selected and controlled? So, as I mentioned before, there's these chronic wounds versus these recurrent wounds. You know, obviously, if you're creating a well-designed study, you really want to have, you know, try to eliminate as much bias variables looking at wounds that are chronically open or a good way to approach that for you. And, you know, we, we uh, talked then about our CMC requirements. These are very complex drugs, you know, that have a lot of manufacturing requirements. And luckily, as a company, you know, we had been creating these cells and manufacturing advanced therapies for over a decade here in our uh, GMP facility we have out in the Philadelphia area and continue to use this facility for this for FCX 007 and, and all of our, um, in our expanded pipeline going forward. So, you know, the path from here now that we've had meeting is, you know, we've initiated this trial. We're looking to start enrollment very shortly um, with our first center coming up. And we'd hope to have this over the course of 2021. We look forward to, you know, enrolling and manufacturing, treating patients over the course of that year. Hope to have some data coming out then after we finish up the follow-ups. So we're going to be looking at 12 weeks as a primary uh, follow-up post the first injection session. And then continue to collect those data and work towards a BLA. Given that this is a, an, an autologous therapy that requires chronic administration, how cost-effective do you see these treatments being? Sure. And the the uh, sort of the approach we've taken to ensure this is a cost-effective um, approach and, and that we can really, you know, we can really deliver these in, in a reasonable way is, is, as I alluded to before, is how we bank these cells. So we're not creating the therapy from scratch every time we're going to go back and treat, a, you know, a, a patient with a chronic wounding disorder. It would be um, difficult to always have to go back and try to require uh, source material from these patients, which are very small biopsy punches, but, you know, our goal is to minimize that as much as we can. So we've created this ability to bank these cells in quite a large volume, which means we can put billions of cells into cryogenic storage and then pull from them in order to go back and then, you know, dose these patients over the course of a lifetime. And so that creates a very cost-effective model because although, you know, as with gene therapy, a lot of the testing, the viral vector, these are very costly items, 
if you look at the cost of the bank, you know, that first sort of injection has has the sort of narrowest margins. But as you move down the course of therapy over time, every time I take the cells out and we thaw, wash them and test them and ship them, you know, that's a that's a very high margin item because of the fact that we didn't have to go back and grow the cells up, introduce the vector. So so over the course of time you really do see a very economical way to 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 uh treat these patients and we think that's an effective way to to approach payers and, and, and other folks when we're really bringing this out commercially. What kind of conversations have you had with payers to date? Yeah, and we have touched with payers in both the private areas, private sectors, and also in the, um, you know, in, in, in managed care. And the consensus is clear that there is a, this is a very unmet need and that they're looking for therapies in this area in order to help these patients. So, you know, very favorable discussion so far and more to come, you know, as we're rolling out, you know, through the clinical trial and then as we're talking about our commercial launches. Uh, but I think the general consensus is really EB is a met. It is actually a very high economical impact on patients who are spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just for home care of wounds. So if there's a way to offset these cares, never mind the surgeries I mentioned, never mind the psychological impacts on family, all of the uh, therapy that goes along with it. Uh, we think this is a very good model going forward when we're, we're having those discussions. In December, Castle Creek Pharmaceutical Holdings completed its acquisition of Fibrocell. Castle Creek was developing a topical ointment for epidermolosis bullosis simplex. This is a, a related indication, but a, a very different approach as it's small molecule ointment that targets the inflammatory response. What was the rationale for the acquisition of Fibrocell? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, if you follow this sort of the history of the relationship, we had started this as a uh, collaboration, FCX007, um, from a licensing agreement, you know, earlier on before the acquisition. And, and you know, we, when we worked with Castle Creek, it, there's a lot of synergies on a number of levels. And I think the, the main sort of reason we came together is around EB in general. So as you've mentioned, they have a, um, a small molecule for topical application for EB simplex. EB simplex is another subtype. There are three. There's EB simplex, there's dystrophic, and there's junctional. Uh, you know, so it makes sense to sort of bring these technologies together to be a very broad and thus strong leader in development of EB therapies. And we thought that that synergy together makes a lot of sense. It's great for our advocacy groups that we work very close with. It's great for patients to recognize us that we're really committed to doing this in multiple subtypes as the, you know, kind of marriage of the companies come together. But I also think there's a big push to really approach the genetic size of the diseases. And I think, you know, Castle Creek was really interested in approaching dystrophic EB. There's a genetic component there that really does need to be addressed. Not, And there is in all EBs, but in this particular case, because you know, because of the way that the uh, the depth and the protein works, that this made a lot of sense to marry these two together. And I think there's a broader approach. You know, we, we, we also are looking at other disorders as well, as, you know, look like scleroderma and anything else that it's in tissue that has a genetic replacement need is something that could potentially be in our pipeline in the future. So it's it's really the growth of of, of rare dermatological conditions bringing these companies together, and really broadening the platform and approach for patients. And what does the acquisition do for Fibercell? What does it do for Castle Creek? Sure. So 
you know, on, on, on the fiber cell front, as a public company who, you know, obviously struggled through the, you know, the way public biotech uh, companies sometimes can, we, we uh, you know, obviously working through finances and through, um, you know, through navigating the field as a small company, you know, the benefits to fiber cell were really, um, really from a, a, a financial and sort of a bandwidth standpoint. They, you know, the, the uh, Castle Creek Network brings a lot of talented individuals that can bring in uh, a lot of horsepower from a, a, a from a, not only from an executive management standpoint, from a technical standpoint, to really help us drive our programs through a critical period. You know, and FibroCell uh, was an R&D engine that really worked through a lot of these early gene therapies. And, you know, we didn't have the sort of infrastructure to address commercial. And I think that's something that's the real big advantage here from having uh, Castle Creek as a partner. And then I think on the flip side with Castle Creek, I, I, I got the impression they had a very strong interest in advanced therapies. And, and when, they're, when they're looking at potential acquire companies to acquire, who's got an advanced therapy that has a very good chance of making its way into a phase three trial, who has infrastructure. And we've been very lucky here at FiberCell to have an advanced CGMP you know, uh, facility that's been active for quite a lot of years. FDA's been through and inspected the facility you know, through some early iterations of the company. And it, that's sort of built-in infrastructure that could be ready to service the, the U.S. market for um, 007 when it comes when it comes on live in the future. We were, you know, very lucky to get this through the trial and through the BLA. So I think it's a nice uh, uh, avenue to move into advanced therapies and, and essentially bring on a platform to treat all sorts of other rare disorders as well. And what's the future of the combined company? Will it be a, a regenerative medicine company? Will it be focused on skin and connective tissue disorders? Or will it build its pipeline wherever opportunity takes it? Yeah, and, I, and, and the vision, uh, Dan, here is is really all of those as we move along. It's really, you know, really important to the combined company that, you know, we, we have a strong focus on 007 as it's moving its way through approval. I think that is the, that is sort of the, the, the tail of the, of the platform. You know, if we can show that's an active platform member that that can move its way through a regulatory, um, you know, a very, you know, difficult regulatory pathway, you know, we can run into an area where we see that platform growing. Um, it does not say we are strictly a regenerative medicine company, and we think that diacerin has a very big role with the company also in the future. Um, if it has anti-inflammatory uh, capabilities, not only in EB and other EB subtypes as well, I mentioned, you know, junctional and even um, uh, dystrophic, and then, you know, could it impact other diseases as well? So I think it's a, it's, it's a, a real growth play here for both companies, Derm rare disease, really focus hard on EB right now for our patients and being the leader there. A lot of potential to grow into other derm indications. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, I alluded to earlier, you know, these can be applied to tissues broadly, and maybe we do bring in, uh, there, there's new indication areas uh, that really takes the opportunity in a lot of different areas. It's a very exciting time right now for this company. I'm very happy to have the Castle Creek sort of bandwidth that comes in and really helps fiber cell come into a much stronger combined company moving forward. So, uh, you know, a lot, lot of news to come over 2020 and 21, and we're really excited as a group together to share it. John Mislowski, CEO of Castle Creek. John, thanks so much for your time today. Dan, thanks for having me, and, and uh, I hope you have a great holiday season, and thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.